Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Assuming that you heard any previous recordings, we've got a number of interesting topics that we'd like to discuss uh, today. And the first one is the Python move, or the rather the mooted Python move of the development team to a distributed version control system. Uh, the nominated tool being Mercurial, sometimes known more briefly as HG. So, Brett, since you're the infrastructure chair, would you like to maybe let us know what the current state of play is on the DVCS adoption move? Uh, sure. Uh, I should probably give a little bit of technical background, though, of why we're kind of doing this and what's led to the stall. So, about PyCon 2008, I started to think about what it would take and what to move to uh, to get us off Subversion, which is Python's current uh, choice of version control system, onto a distributed one, uh, mainly so that non-core developers would have a, com a proper tool to allow them to do their own commits, um, etc. compared to Subversion, where unless you're a core developer, you don't really get to have commits and a real proper tool chain to do your development work. So it was a hope to lower the barrier of entry for people who don't quite have core uh, commit access yet. Uh, fast forward to PyCon 2009, uh, Guido and I uh, finally make the call to switch to Mercurial. Uh, and this was after basically a year-long chat and look and trying to decide between Bizarre, Git, and Mercurial itself. Uh, shortly after we made that announcement, though, uh, some of the Windows developers stepped forward and said, uh, we have line-ending issues that we're not happy with how Mercurial handles it. Uh, it turns out that the plugin or extension for Mercurial that is typically used uh, is called Win32Text, and it's a suboptimal solution for what some of the core developers are after. It is a uh, personal setting. It is not in any way controlled by the version control system. So if you're at all familiar with Mercurial, um, think of your .hg ignore file. That's version controlled. Uh, Win32 text actually uses a file that's only local to your checkout. So there's no way to tweak a setting and have it uh, be applied to everyone else who happens to have a clone of your branch. Yep. And so what ended up happening was we went to the Mercurial developers and said, uh, do you guys have something else we can use for this or how have other people handled it? And they basically said, well, all other Windows developing developer teams are just fine. They don't really need anything else or they just make sure they don't check in anything that's busted with wrong line endings. Uh, but the people who from the core development team who were the big Windows developers have said that's not really acceptable and basically they want something equivalent to Subversion's uh, line ending support, their EOL support. So at the moment, we're trying to um, get a extension that works much more like SVN EOL yeah. uh, developed and going and we actually have some of the uh, Mercurial developers themselves helping to contribute to that to try to get that going. Okay, so there's a couple of important points there. One that you, you mentioned you're trying with the distributed version control system to lower the barrier of entry, as you put it. And right. it sounds as though what you're saying is that with a, a proper DVCS like Mercurial, you can actually accept a commit from an individual user without having to give them a global commit bit or anything like that. It's all down to assessing somebody's changes and differences from your revision, your current version, and then accepting them if you want. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good way to look at it. In the world of Subversion, the master copy of any 
uh, any branch or any chunk of code is what's on the subversion server. But in a distributed version control system, everyone's on equal footing. It's just you happen to have a blessed uh, location of code that people kind of socially decide is the master copy. So by having it technically equal to everyone, for instance, if you, Steve, didn't have commit privileges, you could still have a clone of Python's code and make local commits and have it work as if you were a core developer. It just you don't automatically get to push it to python.org to have the world recognize it as the authoritative copy of Python. Which is, quite frankly, knowing my coding skills, probably in the world, to the world's direct advantage. Oh, okay. I don't know. I've made my own botches myself. So, Well, not to, to worry. Not to worry. So, Andrew, you've been involved with core development quite a long time. How do you feel that the DVACS will improve things? Have you used Mercurial at all? Uh, as it happens, yes. Uh, and, in fact, I just this past week read... Mercurial, the definitive guide, which is the O'Reilly book describing Mercurial, but you can find the complete book available on the web. Uh, so I, I think th the big hope for the transition to Mercurial is that it will make it easier for people to become contributors. Because right now people submit patches and the patches uh, are submitted on bugs.python.org, and there's a very small pool of people processing these patches. And in the bright new distributed version control future, hopefully people can make a change, publish their changes using bitbucket.org or their own personal website or something like that. And... They can they can be more productive and not be dependent on one of the small number of Python committers to to integrate their change. So yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm I'm disappointed that it, that it's really taking so long. Well, okay, this this brings me to the second uh, important point that came out of Brett's initial description, which was it sounds to me as though despite what was a fairly lengthy evaluation period for Git versus Mercurial versus Bazaar, uh, people who were developers in the Windows world don't seem to have got involved with that process and so therefore were taken by surprise by this issue in a way which they wouldn't if they'd been more involved with the transition earlier. Michael, you, you do a lot of development on, on Windows. Because one, of the reasons, one of the big reasons why Mercurial was chosen over Git, I mean, there were various reasons, but uh, Windows support being better was one of the, uh, <laughs> the big reasons, wasn't it? Yes, that yeah, is. Yeah, actually was one of them. Mm. <laughs> well, I think, honestly, what happened was, so I wrote the PEP or Python enhancement proposal for this, and that took, Ages, and I got that out and everything. And I think kind of the Windows developers thought I had covered it. And when I mentioned Win32 Tech as a potential solution, they thought, oh, "Okay, great." And no one really realized because I'm not a Windows user myself that the solution that I picked out from the Mercurial community the community that had been used uh, really wasn't up to the bar that Python wants in terms of EOL solutions. So it was just kind of essentially a miscommunication on everyone's part and unfortunately yeah. it happened after we made the decision and it's just the hold up at the moment. Sure. Well, but on if, the, oh, sorry, go on, Mike. Didn't, um, 
Didn't Martin say that issue is now, that specific issue is now fixed? Because if that's the case, what's the hold up now? No, Martin was mis, uh, Martin was wrong, basically. <laughs> oh, okay. So we're still no, waiting on fixed yet. It, it, Right. So just so everyone has a URL to follow along with this, if you go to Mercurial's Wiki, uh, there's a page called EOL Trans, Translation Plan. You can also Google for H-G-E-O-L, one word, and look for the first hit for the uh, Mercurial Wiki page. Uh, basically, the plugin has been started. Um, as I said, it is under active, de- active development. Uh, it just isn't quite finished yet. I think they're also looking for a little more input from Windows developers and such before they really fully commit it because it is being developed um, mainly by Martin Geisler, uh, who is a Mercurial developer, uh, core developer. And I think they are looking at actually having this replace uh, Win32 text as their primary uh, line-ending solution. So that I don't think they want to mess it up. So they're not rushing it to try to get out the door. So if people want to help, it's still in their active development or want to provide input, they can. And I'm sure they'd be happy to hear from people on it. Yeah, I have to say the communications I've seen from the Mercurial development community, not that I've seen them all, but the ones I have seen do seem quite positive and helpful. Yeah, I actually talked with them when I was doing the uh, review process for all this, and they were always very nice, very helpful, fairly prompt in the responses. So they're definitely not in any way an acidic group or anything like that. And, and although you wrote the pep, um, Brett, there's a chap called Dirk Jan who's actually planning the migration itself. Is that right? Yeah, so what ended up happening was after I announced that this was going to happen, I took a three-month hiatus from Python development to work on my PhD thesis proposal. And uh, Drishan stepped forward saying, well, I'm actually a core developer, and I'd like to handle the transition himself. So he took over the actual handling of the transition from subversion to Mercurial uh, while, I, while I disappeared off the face of the earth. And... Are you back? Yet? That's unfortunately roughly when this whole line ending thing kind of exploded. The mercurial mirror of the Python source tree is visible at hg.python.org. Uh, I believe so, yes. But so it looks like the conversion was last executed about three months ago. Yeah, so there's actually two mirrors. The one at hg.python.org is the test one that. Uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing Dirk Chan's name. Um, Dirk Chan uses to test the conversion uh, from the version in terms of fidelity and what it would what it will look like when the fl- when the um, switch is flipped to turn off the version and move to Mercurial. There is though another mirror that is a read-only mirror that if you commit to nothing will happen. That is available. Um, I honestly can't remember the URL right now, but I'm sure if you Google for Python HG mirror, you can find it. That is actually up to date within usually five minutes of subversion. The deal is, is just not exactly what it would look like when we flip the switch to go to Mercurial and it's uh, read only and there's no attempt to support read write on it. So if you do prefer Mercurial, you can use it. And I do know some of the core developers do use the Mercurial read only mirror to do their development. And uh, I looked up the URL. And the read-only mirror is at code.python.org slash hg. And it, it does seem to be up to date. The last committed 62 minutes ago. I think the reason for going to code.python.org instead of hg.python.org is so that if we change um, 
version control client in the in the future, the the uh, subdomain doesn't have to change completely. Yeah, that actually was a discussion of whether or not we should make code.parthenon.org the default from now on or not. And people said, no, we should stick with the version control specific subdomain so that if we do make the switch yet again in the future, like we did from CVS to Subversion and now hopefully in the near future to HG, everyone will suddenly have, it'll be very obvious what version control system to use. Yeah, because suddenly your branch will become older and older and older as time goes by and you'll eventually realize that nobody's updating this thing anymore. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's that's not bad at all. Anything else on this, do you think, or have we beaten this particular, flogged this particular horse to death? Uh, no, nothing else. As I said, if you are uh, interested in the whole EOL Linini issue and want to help get the Mercurial switch to happen faster, please do have a look at the Mercurial extension. As I said, it's in their wiki at EOL translation plan or just Google for H-G-E-O-L, one word, and go to the first hit on the Mercurial wiki for the page. Uh, and especially if you're a Windows developer because uh, most of the core development team is not on Windows, and those that are tend to be very Unix line-ending friendly people, so they don't really run into the issues that we do. Um, and that's pretty much it. Hopefully it'll happen in the near future. Uh, I'm planning to start, take a crack at it fairly soon, hopefully before PyCon, if not right there at the conference, and hopefully we'll have it done in the near future in 2010. Cool. Thanks, everybody. So, the next big thing of note, the next big happening of note recently has been the release of the first in the series of alpha releases for Python 2.7. And Andrew, you've been tracking the development to make sure that the what's new in Python 2.7 notes are up to date. So what can you tell us is coming down the pike with this version? 2.7 alpha 1 came out on December 5, about two weeks ago now. And the release plan is to have a new alpha and then a series of betas, basically one per month. And the first beta is expected to be in April 2010. And then there would be two or three betas and one or two release candidates and then a final release in June. And this is much slower than the normal pace of development, right? No, I, I think it's about the same as, as usual. Okay. Uh, alphas come along every so so often, and the release candidates come very close together, perhaps uh, only a week or so apart, because at that point, the number of changes is quite small. For Python 2.7, the language moratorium, which we previously discussed, is in effect... And so there aren't really any lang- changes to the Python language itself. And uh, sorry. Oh, oh I just like to say the, the moratorium. In terms of, there's nothing new that's not already in Python 3.1. There's still backports of features from 3.1, but there's nothing completely uniquely new to 2.7 that does not already exist in Python 3.1. So it just represents a further convergence of the two language lines, insofar as. Not, I mean, I know not all 3.0 features are going to be backported into the Python 2 series, but it's just getting Python 2 closer to Python 3 and therefore making the transition that much easier if you, if and when you decide to bite the Python 3 bullet, right? Exactly. Good. Yes. There are a few features backported from 3, and... 
And there are also some new features that are are going to be new in 2.7 and in the next 3.2 release. Uh, so, for example, one, one new item is an ordered dictionary type, which is something that people tend to rebuild themselves a lot. Uh, and there are a, a number of unit test improvements that I think Michael will be able to talk to tell us about. And there are some small things like a, a few new math functions uh, to compute the gamma function and the error function, and a few new POSIX functions have gotten wrapped, and there are various changes to the libraries. The two big backports from Python 3, first is, is the I.O. library was rewritten in C in, I think, Python 3.1? That's correct, yep, yeah. That was the release. Because the pure Python implementation worked, Sucked. but it, <laughs> it imposed a lot of overhead and was relatively slow. Yeah. And yes, when I, said, when I said suck, I was talking purely about the performance. It was actually a complete implementation, as far as I know. Yeah, it was. And it's a very nice library, by the way, for those who have not used it. So it got rewritten in C for Python 3.1, and that set of changes was backported to 2.7. And the other big change is to the code which takes a floating-point number and calculates its string representation. Uh-huh. Mark Dickinson has been doing a lot of work on this code to make it produce more readable output. So that instead of getting 0 0.029999, you get 0 0.03 or something more reasonable. And so it, it improves accuracy in a few cases and just generally makes floating point numbers more reproducible in the sense that if you have a floating point number, convert it to a string and then convert that string back to a floating point number, you get out the same set of answers. So when basically it makes it, <clears throat> we could uh, say an abbreviation, it makes it a bit more calculator-like? I suppose, yes. Because that was, that was why originally uh, Guido justified moving away from pure integer division in 3, wasn't it? And basically that because it, it doesn't agree with the way calculators work and most people who come to programming from another discipline find it rather counterintuitive that they put 82.2 .2 in and then they get 82.2000000000007 out. This change, though, is only going to delay the pain point for a, a lot of new developers. I mean, you can't get round the fact that at some point you have to learn about floating point numbers and, and learn about the limitations. <laughs> But it's going to be less surprising to people who are just starting with the language, I think. Sure. If you're doing serious, significant scientific calculations, then you have to do enough numerical analysis to be confident in your results. But people who come to it completely new won't be quite so confused. Uh, I was about to ask uh, Michael if he wanted to talk about the enhancements to the unit test module. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm quite excited by 2.7 because I, I became a, um, a Python core developer, or at least I got the, the commit bit at uh, the last PyCon, and most of what I've done has been working in the unit test library, and, and, and most of that gets released in 2.7. And so there are a whole bunch of improvements, some of which come from Google, and were integrated by Guido and um, a developer called Greg and, and myself. We did a bit of work on it. We've got things like um, test discovery, so that um, you don't have to use something like Nose if you, if you don't want to. If you just want to find all your test, unit tests in, in a, a project and run them, you can do that from the command line using 
um, unit tests. We've got um, a, a whole bunch of type-specific um, comparison functions. So when you do a cert equal and you give it two sets, for example, or two lists, then it, um, unit test knows how, how to compare them, but also it knows how to nicely format the error message when it fails. So it can say, right, well, you had a list and you had this extra member rather than just blatting out everything onto the screen. Oh, very uh, good. So that saves you, that focuses on the differences for you. Yeah, that's right. It's a lot of them. A lot of the changes are about better presentation of failure messages. I'm trying to look through the list. There's a whole um, yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's generically research, speaking, it's a, it's a usability focus rather than. I mean, the test suite did pretty much everything that it needed to do, didn't it? Right, right. The, the, in terms of core changes, there's a new there's a new protocol that has been sort of built in to go with the test discovery so that you can customize your modules when test discovery is happening. Okay. But I don't imagine too many people will need to use it. And the rest really is just about usability of the library, yeah. I mean, so there's a big list of the changes, the new assert methods and, and so on in the, in the What's New document. So that's the best place to, to go and find out about them at the moment. Great. And since we're talking about uh, 2.7 and since you're an Iron Python developer as well, I wondered if you know whether the Iron Python team have specified any particular time frame during which they want to bring Iron Python up to the 2.7 standard. I always feel sorry for the developers of these other implementations. I'm not. A, I've used Iron Python a lot, but I'm not an Iron Python developer. And they just like um, something like about a week ago brought out 2.6. 2.6. Yeah. And it's like about the same time. We're. I'll forget 2.6. We're on 2.7 now. <laughs> um, for the Iron Python guys, they really they would love to do Python three, yeah. Because yeah. particularly the new I/O stuff that's in Python three um, and uh, Unicode strings much more closely matches um, the .NET framework that Iron Python. Sure, it on. makes their life easier. But the, the problem is that all the, they have the same problem that the Python community has that all of the users and the libraries are, are, are mainly two point X focused. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Only gradually migrating over to, to Python three, so if they if they went straight to uh, Python three and dropped two point X, I think they'd get a lot of protests. Uh -huh. So um, I, I think I think for the moment their their plan is to track two point uh, two point seven compatibility. Probably start working on that soon. Um, okay. But hopefully they can switch to three soon. And Brett, uh, Andrew gave us a time frame for the two point seven development. That's going to be roughly parallel with three point two. Do you? Happen to know that the 3.2 schedule in so far as it's been set? Yeah, so we were actually originally planning to do a simultaneous release, but thanks to the moratorium, it's not quite a, such a big deal because we wanted to make sure that 2.7 and 3.2 didn't diverge very far. Yeah. But with moratorium in place, there's really no way to diverge because we're locked down to 3.1 language semantics until Python, I think, 3.4, roughly. I mean, years and years out. So we're going to do a normal 18-month delayed release. So with Python 3.1 having come out in June of this year, 2009, yep. uh, there won't be a release until, I suspect, December 2010, if not January 2011. Yeah, so around so, a year from now. Yeah, exactly, about a year from now because it's been six months since 3.1 came out. Okay. And before we move too far forward, I want to publicly thank Michael for his changes to Unitest. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the perks of getting to work off of uh, the development branches of Python is I get to play with the new toys immediately, and Michael's changes to the Unitest framework are really nice and handy. 
Uh, and also, just to let people know, uh, at least in Python 3, we've deprecated all those fail unless methods. Okay. And we're completely switching over to assert. So if you're out there writing new unit test code, use the assert versions uh, if you want to make your future code a little easier to deal with and not have to switch those methods at some point in the very far future. So people uh, using... to assert equal rather than assert equals. Again, removing some of the duplication, which is a shame. I prefer to assert equals. But Guido ruled assert equal it is, so uh, that's what that's what we're using. And assert equals the plural officially is deprecated. And in the long run, we'll get rid of all this duplication in, in the library. Okay, so there's no more assert greater than's either. Then <laughs> I don't think that was there in the first place. No, I just invented it to confuse people. Right, <laughs> <laughs> that. Okay, so I think then we're pretty clear on what's happening in the the 2.7 world. And I would say for people interested in learning more, uh, you can read the uh, nightly build version of the What's New in Python 2.7 document at docs.python.org slash dev. And if you follow a few links, you'll get to the document. Okay, I suppose as well we should also make a plea for Windows users particularly, but all Python users to at least download the 2.7 alpha releases and give them an initial testing with their software if they have the time, because that kind of feedback is invaluable at this point in the development cycle. Um, yeah, we, we've had some... Um the, the Twisted guys particularly are very good at uh, running their tests on sort of almost daily builds of Python, and they've picked up on some problems I, I happen to know about in unit tests. And, and it's great to be able to fix these before we release them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. We don't want, we don't want to have to issue a, a micro-release four weeks after the initial 2.7. You know, 2.71 should be like June the following year or something like that if it needed at all. And just as we finish the topic, just to say there are some treasures in Python 2.7. We've got the memory view object. We've got import lib um, coming in. Um, we've got the I.O. library. So, so there, uh, the, the order dictionary, there are a whole bunch of interesting things worth digging into. And, of course, they'll all be in, in Python 3 as well. Well, there's also a bunch of GC optimizations, too. I mean, 2.7's got a, a bunch of nice optimizations in there, so it's definitely going to be a nice little carrot for those who are still on two on the 2 series to not stop at 2.6, but actually keep moving on to 2.7, because as we discussed in a previous episode, 2.7 quite possibly will be the end, but we've made sure that it's a good end to the Python 2 series. Okay, cool. To do one, one thing, I want to clarify. Uh, I believe the import lib module in Python 2.7 is just a teeny tiny little compatibility subset that doesn't actually do everything that the 3.1 package does. Brett, is is my understanding correct? Because that's certainly what I wrote. Yeah, no, you wrote exactly what you should have written, uh, Andrew. Uh, just to keep it uh, short and sweet, yes, uh, the complete import lib package with all the code to help you write custom importers, etc., is only in the Python 3 branch. Uh, it came into 3.1, and I'll continue to add new features until it's got all the bells and whistles you could possibly want. But what I did backport into 2.7 and actually subsequently into Django 1.1 uh, is a function called import module to basically make it really easy for people to programmatically import modules 
Oh, the Django um, guys so are going to love you for that. They do that all over the place. Oh, is that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually wrote the patch to backport it into Django 1.1 and to actually go through and change their code, and it cleaned up a lot of their spots. So basically, mm. if you're using under, under, import, under, under directly anywhere, as of Django 1.1, if you're a Django user or if you're a Python developer using 2.7, uh, don't anymore. Definitely <laughs> pull the import module function. It's a heck of a lot cleaner and simpler to use, and it gets rid of a lot of nice little edge cases and such. Excellent. Uh, there's also a version in PyPI. Um, if you search for import lib, you'll find a version that's been back uh, ported to, I believe, 2.3. I had to do that for the Django guys. So even if you're not using 2.7, uh, as long as you're using 2.3 newer, Go to PyPI, search for import lib, and you'll find the exact same function available. And I would definitely use it because it makes it a lot easier to programmatically import. Good. Thanks very much, everybody. So lastly today, we decided it would be a good idea to talk about the Python package index, PyPy as it's sometimes confusingly known, because it can be confused with PYPY, uh, Python in Python. But recently, uh, the code to support the Python package index had new functionality, ad new functionality added to it, which allowed users to comment on packages that they found in the package index. And this has been, I think we could say, a surprisingly uh, controversial addition to the, to the genre. So, Michael, I wonder if you could summarize what happened and the uh, emotions that it stirred up in the in the Python user community, and the okay, developers well, too, of course. The Python package index is at um, pypi.python.org, and I guess most people who develop or, or use Python regularly will have heard of it, because this is the standard place where Python packages are listed and can be downloaded from, and particularly in recent years, it's become a really important part of the Python infrastructure, a bit like um, CPAN for Perl, because you can use the, the easy install or various other tools to actually automatically download and install packages from PYPI, PyPy. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the, the whole development of, of the, the package index has pretty much been done by, by one developer, one of the Python core developers called Martin von Lewis, and, and he decided it would be nice for users to be able to comment on packages and rate them. And um, so he, he implemented that and added that. And then various, well, it, it all kicked off on, on the, the Python develop mailing list, I think, is that right? That uh, at least one developer had noticed that he got negative comments on his package that he felt sort of um, didn't make sense and weren't fair, and there was very little he could do about it. And, and so he started a big debate, and, and it roused very strong feelings in a lot of developers who felt that having comments that, that turning the Python package index into a social network was not the direction they wanted to see it go. And subsequently, um, th there was a lot of debate, um, and Martin and, and I think also Guido weighed in on and said, well, the point of the Python package index is not really there for the developers, it's really there for the users. Um, but as a compromise, they, they had a vote um, of, of users to see whether users were generally in, in favor of the feature or not. And then, has it been changed as a result of this vote? Does that, do you know what the, the outcome of this vote was? Well, I mean, for, before we discuss the outcome of the vote, let me say that the the Python community, and, and I do mean the, com the community at large, not just the PSF, seems to have this propensity 
to call for elections for deciding matters, and I remember that this happened. <laughs> this happened when decorators were introduced into the language, which is oh, not yes, yes, yeah, which is not necessarily an appropriate way to proceed, particularly since we get the immediate initial bias of one poor individual having to come up with the options that are chosen, you know, that, that people are presented with in this election. But, I mean, you know, democracy is not the way, I, I suggest, to get sensible software development. And the fact that Python's done so well in the past mm -hmm. has been mostly and, and because... And everyone on the decorators. Exactly, just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, reason, <laughs> the reason that Python has succeeded so well is because it has had a benevolent dictator who's got pretty good software design skills, I think. Anyway, that's all I want to say, but I'm interested to hear what everybody else has got to say about it. It, it really brought out different viewpoints on this. For instance, as Michael pointed out, it kind of makes PyPI, or as I will always call it, the cheese shop, which was the original name just for historical interest to anyone. But there was people didn't like that because of business suits wouldn't like the cheese shop, so that's why it's PyPI. Anyway, um, it was really interesting because, as Michael pointed out, some people like the idea of adding kind of the social aspect so people could rate. Some people wanted uh, the cheese shop, PyPI, to be this kind of very just store bits of data for people to download and, be, and continue to be this very authoritative and that's completely unbiased storage place. Some people wanted a balance to let people choose what to do, etc., and it was, I found it just really interesting to see the different viewpoints people had of PyPI and just where they, how they viewed it. Like, I just always viewed it as the place where stuff was stored, but if we added a social aspect to it, fine. Other people were totally against it and wanted it to be this, like, ivory tower whitelist of all packages that are Python. And it was just a view I personally never even thought of. Well, that's certainly true. Oh, by the way, I, being one of the people who wasn't really terribly happy with the cheese shop name. It was not to appease the soups. The only reason I didn't think the cheese shop was a good name for PyPy was because it doesn't really tell you what it does. You know, when you're looking for a piece of software, I've never heard anyone say, ah, I know, I'll go and look in the cheese shop, because you just don't think about it. So I, I think it's a perfectly <laughs> fine name, and it's got, as those of us who follow Monty Python know, it's got a, uh, a very honourable derivation from a, a Monty Python sketch. But it just doesn't help people, you know, when, when you say, oh, and of course, you'll find things in the cheese shop. Well, it's, it's not an of course, is it? That's all. Anyway. I just feel bad for the PyPy project because I've heard so many people call PyPI PyPy, and it, at least it always takes me a minute to go, oh, they actually mean the, the package index, not the Python and Python VM. I like the, like the PyPI pronunciation, but it doesn't seem to... Uh yeah, I think that's really a good idea. On. I think PyPI would be excellent, or we could even just call it the package index, I suppose, since we know we're Python programmers. That's true. Andrew, you've been very quiet about all this. Uh, I think at least some of the initial poor reaction to it stemmed from the fact that it was sort of a unilateral decision that meant the developers had one more information source to follow, something else they had to pay attention to. And I think a lot of people are feeling kind of oversubscribed to things. You have your Twitter and your Facebook and your mailing lists. And you know, if you pile on one more thing that, well, now you have to watch for the comments on your packages on PyPI, that's 
one more thing that they, they I, I, I can I can sympathise with that. I, I'm releasing a package and I'd forgotten about the SourceForge page, and I just just discovered just before doing the release two more bug reports on SourceForge that I hadn't accounted for, so I delayed the release and had to go and fix those as well. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, there's not only that. I have seen very inappropriate comments in certain places, including one against a package that I'm not going to name because I think it was very... This was a, a piece of really unfair usage of PyPI. Uh, and that was where one database developer had complained about one of the, the database support packages. And then the uh, the maintainer actually came back with a very cogent reply as to why the complaints weren't actually justified. And after several back-and-forth exchanges, the original commenter eventually revealed that the only reason he'd made the comment was so that he could publish his own details of his own package, and which was competing, and thereby, you know, released the URL as well, which I thought was uh, both juvenile and somewhat unfair. Yeah, that was another worry that some people had, such as our... Our absentee but sometimes regular uh, member, Jesse, uh, was that there was no real, at least the way it was originally built, there was no way to protect against spam or just totally off-topic comments. So some people, for instance, said, this is fine, but we don't think, some people thought, that they shouldn't add commenting unless we have a proper system in place to like flag comments as inappropriate, a way to deal with spam, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that it's not just this total Wild West open internet uh, comment system. Yeah, so no, some I'm, people were even okay with it. They just wanted a better system to control it to make sure it was properly used, not used for like a for bug tracking by some complete newbie who just didn't quite realize where to go to report a bug, for instance, or someone who, as you point out, Steve, just trolling around just to up his link count. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It, it, the whole thing was a, a little bit fraught, and I think it was a bit unfair that, that people jumped on Martin because all he was really doing was trying to improve the facilities that were offered without really... Re- I think he probably didn't realise the implications of the the change. And, and one good, yeah, really good thing that could come out of this is that hopefully we've got a bunch of people interested um, in the development of... of um, the Python package index now, and, and I think there's a bit of a call for a sprint at the next PyCon, which is coming soon, and um, hopefully we should see um, a few more people involved. Absolutely, yes. It wasn't by choice that Martin was the only developer. And people have made noise about writing a complete new package index. The existing package index code, it started out life as a CGI, and so the code still bears a lot of evidence of this, and it isn't written using any particular web framework. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll believe these projects when I actually see them live, of course. Well, right, (laughs) plus the fact I think that you have to be careful when when people are suggesting that a completely new implementation is appropriate, because if Guido had ignored... Uh, his own feeling to fork Python 3 from Python 2 point whatever, I think we'd have ended up with a lot more bugs in Python 3 than we actually did, and, and the Mozilla guys learned that lesson when they try, when they re-implement, re- re-implemented Netscape instead of forking the existing code base. My personal worry is that what will happen is, is, as was mentioned, the code for PyPI is fairly ancient. It was started as a sprint at 
PyCon 2005. So this is pre-Whiskey. I think 2005 so, was actually where Jingo kind of got publicly announced. I mean, yes, it was. It didn't exist in those days. Exactly. So this is way back before Python's web legs really got up and going. So the code's pretty old, and that's why Martin Von Loos, uh, God bless him, has been the only guy who's really kept the code up and running and consistently improved. Um, my worry is people are going to just toss the code, develop their own version, but then not get that pushed to pi.python.org, and suddenly we're going to have a slight forking of package indexes, which will be unfortunate. Now, luckily... Um, Tarek Zialdi, uh, who's developing Distribute, which is the new uh, pretty replacement the for fork of this tools. Yeah, the fork of setup yeah, tools. The fork of setup tools, which, by the way, if you're out there and you don't know about Distribute, stop using setup tools, start using Distribute. Um, he has made sure that there's support to specify, for instance, what package index to use. So, God forbid, we actually do end up with competing package indexes. It's taken care of. But at least for me personally, I'd like. I hope that we can always. This will stay resolved and stay more. And the PyPI will stay the authoritative one. And any new sparkly index that comes along can get their code pushed to PyPI, and we can keep having the kind of authoritative URL. Well, what we, yeah, but what we, okay, but don't we need a distributed version control system or rather a distributed package distribution system as well? So long as they carry the same packages, I mean, mirroring has been something that's really been needed in um, the Python packaging index for a long time, and I think that's one of the things that that. Parrot's been looking at, But, but we need, if we have various indexes, they all need to carry the same same packages and the same information. Yeah. And yeah, that's my big worry. It's not the displaying of it, it's that oh, I decide to host my package at foobar.org while someone decides to use PyPI and someone uses some other one and we end up with three different package indexes we have to follow. So it's no longer just let's use distribute and just say distribute or pip install Sphinx or some other really popular uh, library. But I have to say, install from this package index because this is the only package index that has it. Well, clearly, but whatever tool we end up use, using for this is, is going to have to have a, a path setting so that you can add fifteen different repositories to places to look. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to avoid that situation. I think that isn't really a big problem because the bulk of the metadata for a package comes in a file called package info that's inside the tarball. Yeah. And so I think it would be relatively straightforward to mirror all of the tarballs and read the package info files and then have alternate displays for them. Um, we should, I think, talk a bit about the the fix that Martin committed to after the vote. Oh, go so ahead. The change, the change he committed is that PyPI now has a flag for each package, which is allow comments. Yep. And you can turn this flag on and off at least through the web interface. I, I don't think you can provide an argument in your setup PY that says disallow comments. Uh, so it's now possible to turn comments off for a package. That may still annoy people because they need to do this for every single release of every single package they maintain, which mm-hmm. for some people is a big number. And you can't, I believe, you don't have a setting on the user which says just turn off commenting for all my packages. But if people call for that, that could certainly be added.
This has been bit of a little bit of Python episode three with Michael Ford, Andrew Kuchling, Brett Cannon, and me, Steve Holden, and we hope you've enjoyed it. Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.